Welcome to our last political episode of the season. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. And I'm Dan Lindsay. And we are here to give our thoughts to you, our audience, about the election tomorrow, talk about some policy, talk about where we've come, and potentially where the country is going. So let's get started. So, John, real talk, how does this election rank? When you look at the history of our country, how does this election rank? Because every time we have an election, it's like, this is the most important one yeah. of our... So from a historical perspective, how do you view this election? You're not going to like my answer. I am not able to separate at this point in the middle of an election the historical facts with my personal opinion. When I write history, I don't write anything about basically from 9-11 forward because I can't be objective about it. There is a huge part of me that says there's 1860 and then there's 2020. But I think history will judge this election, one, based on the outcome and how the American people and how the candidates and how the media respond to the outcome once we know what it is. But I think that any historian who tries to rank this election in the panoply of elections that we have had, I think they're doing their profession and I think they're doing their audience a disservice because unless they are supremely uninterested in the outcome of an event, they can't be objective about it. And so when they go out there and they affirm the bias of a CNN or a Fox News anchor who has said, this is the most important election in our lifetime, and they affirm that, they're doing a disservice to themselves, to their profession, and to the audience because they're lending that legitimacy. Maybe this is, but we're not going to know if this is one of the most consequential and important elections in our lifetime until 5, 10, 20 years. Right. We're just now starting to see a reappraisal of the Bush years as the passions and the partisanship of those eight years has started to dim People are starting to reassess that and go, you know what? Maybe he did some things that were genuinely good, right. but maybe he wasn't the worst president that we have ever had. So this election aside, you referenced 1860. Can you just remind our audience about that election? Because that's the one that led to the Civil War. The 1860 election is the only one to this point where we have not seen a peaceful transfer of power because initially seven and ultimately 11 states left the union because they didn't like the outcome of an election. That was the election of Abraham Lincoln. Right. On that, putting your historian hat on, and again, I know it's hard because you're, we're in this context here and now. Do you see something like that happening as a result of this election? <laughs> Can we even get into that right now? Well, I don't see states leaving the union. I, I want to be careful how I answer this. So I've had students ask me this, and I don't want to be accused of spreading fear or of being overly optimistic. There are plenty of people on the left and the right who say that we should prepare for some degree of civil unrest, regardless of the outcome, unless there is massive voter fraud. I tend to disagree with the regardless of the outcome bit. I think that historically, Republicans, when they dislike an election and its outcome, they don't take to the streets. Now, neither do Democrats. We've right. not seen mass civil unrest from Democrats either, but the last year has shown us massive numbers of left-wing activists who probably, no, they're not affiliated with the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is not sending them out. And there have been right-wing militias in the streets as well. The changed circumstances, the changing view of your opponents is not just an opponent, but an enemy that has developed over the last year, in part due to the lockdown and just general passions running high, plus the very real issues of police brutality and lingering issues of race in this country. They have combined to create mobs of, my opinion, unhinged people who are willing to use violence to get what they want. 
Will we see mass amounts of it? I have no way of knowing that. I think it is more likely than in years past, but years past, the likelihood has been like zero. So more likely is it could be 5% or it could be 100%. And I, I have no way of knowing that. And again, putting your historian hat on, because I want to pick your I brain. I like this hat. It fits yeah. well. It's a good, it, it fits your bald head very nicely. <laughs> Thanks, I mean, Dan. Speaking as, a, as another fellow bald man. So <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say anything about the glare uh, that's shining me it's, in the face at the moment, but all right. It's a halo, John. It's oh, halo. yes. My yes. angelic being. And we're both just jealous of Joe that he still has his hair. Yes. Flowing locks of hair. Slightly, slightly thinning hair. Anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> putting your historian hat on, if in the words of Ronald Reagan, Liberty is always one generation away from extinction. Do you put any stock in the thought that every election is the most important election of our lifetimes? I think, I don't want to say that all elections have been equally important. All elections have been consequential, certainly. And given the given the leftward lurch of certain elements in our society, not necessarily parts of the Democratic Party, although there are members who have who adhere to that, you have elements within the party, contrary to what Joe and I discussed at the beginning of the year when I was making my prediction about about who was going to win the primary, and Joe's saying, yeah, they're going to lock people up. Well, that's, that didn't end up happening. But you now have elements within the Democratic Party who are suggesting we need Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, like what happened in South Africa. And that sounds great. Everyone loves truth. Everyone wants to reconcile. The Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa were some of the most violent groups of people in all of human history. And we have people in our society openly talking about unleashing these kinds of groups on people who they disagree with politically. Right there, left, right, Center doesn't matter. That should terrify anyone who is an American who believes in free expression, free ideas, free people, free minds. So if a certain outcome happens and if we get truth and reconciliation commissions that do the kinds of things that some far left activists are suggesting, history will look back on this election and say the American people voted in a regime that destroyed the freedoms that the country was founded on. And they will say this was the most consequential election in all of American history. Because in 1860, we voted in a man who was going to preserve the Union, and he did it. It cost a million lives, it tore the country apart, but it also brought the country back together and ended the great sin of slavery. If we, and I am not, please understand, I am not saying that this will happen if you vote for a certain candidate. I am not saying that. I am saying that if that candidate gets in and if he listens to elements within his party that are saying this, what will be the result? It could be. It's not guaranteed. What could be the result are commissions that restrict the liberties and restrict the rights, not just of people who supported the other side, because precedent is a powerful force in American politics. And if we're going to have truth and reconciliation commissions after the Trump presidency, you want to bet that after the Biden presidency, the right is going to suggest we need truth and reconciliation commissions? It's absolutely going to happen. And here's the thing that should scare people on the left. The right is better at using government power to oppress its opponents. 
not in the United States, but around the world historically, they believe in authority far more than the left does. The right will be more effective at suppressing the left than the left will ever be in this country or any other country in the world at suppressing the right. So bear that in mind as you look at and try to assess this election. Policy or personality? Which one is more important? Dan, I'll let you go first while I gather my thoughts. That's okay. I don't have any thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I fall into the camp that says policy is an extension of one's personality. Okay. So we live in America. We are a very pragmatic and industrialized, process-driven country. Policy should be the thing that matters because policies are what drive results. Personality may affect things like voter turnout. It may affect things like campaign momentum. But I think at the end of the day, someone's personality isn't going to determine whether or not our constitutional rights are infringed upon or our constitutional rights are preserved. That's a policy issue. So I think voting policy should take precedence. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. Unfortunately, I think in our society today, a lot of people, I don't know if it's a majority, but a lot of people really vote based on personality. If you look at 2008, 2012, 2016, it was the candidate with the better personality that won. Barack Obama in 2008 was running against an old establishment character, and he was the voice of change in a new America. Race aside, just the rhetoric that he used was very uplifting and all of that. 2012, Obama's running against a robot. A robot who seems to change programming every couple of months. Yeah, someone hacks his brain every couple of months and he does something a little bit different. And in 2016, Trump, who has a very abrasive personality, was running against the most unpopular figure in post-Cold War American politics. 2016 was not a referendum on Trump. It was a referendum on Clinton. So as far as what should drive Voter turnout, I agree, it should be policy because you made a very good point. It is about our constitutional rights. It's about the freedoms we all enjoy. It's about, honestly, if you look at the state and local level, it's about whether or not states are going to be released from lockdowns. But I think a lot of people are looking at the personality of Joe Biden and the personality of Donald Trump and saying, I'm going to vote based on that because we know what the policies are. And they're very different. But the people that I talk to who are Biden supporters, almost all of them, family members, friends, colleagues. It's all about Trump's personality. He has alienated so many people over the past five years. They just, they can't get past the mean things that he says, the vaguely racist things that he says. Even though many of them are conservative Republicans and they agree with most of his policies, they're just like, I want to go back to a time when we don't have such a big personality in the White House where politics doesn't intrude on my life. I think that's short-sighted. I think there's going to be political intrusion regardless. We've crossed that bridge. But I think personality is going to drive this election just as much as policy. One of the biggest challenges I have post-elections is the challenge that I get, like when either the side that we vote for loses, there's this sense of, okay, now what's going to happen? Because elections have consequences. Yeah. And one of the things that was really a pet peeve for me is people will tell me, Joe, it's okay. The sun's going to rise tomorrow. Everything's going to be fine. I can't tell you the number of times I've had somebody say something like that to me. Is that not true? Or Well, my... Because that's what I told my students on our last 
class yeah, day yeah. before the election. I'm sitting here going, oh, Joe doesn't like my uh, <laughs> my closing statement to the students. All it, right, here I, we go. I don't think that the intent behind what you said was the same as the intent behind what was said to me. So my retort is always, I'm not concerned about the sun rising or setting the next day. Okay. I'm concerned with how the policies will affect our daily life over the next four years. So policy is the difference between mayors of cities sending police officers out to stop rioters who are destroying businesses. Policy is what's going to influence the amount of money that all of us have in our paycheck each pay cycle so that money that will be taken out after tax cuts are repealed or taxes are increased means we have less to spend on our family and friends. Policy is going to say and govern the actual response to COVID. So when we vote, or when we vote... When, yes, not if. Everyone get out there and vote. vote. We look at how the policy affects our daily life, and we say, am I okay with what's going to happen as a result? Personality does not affect my daily life. I disagree. Okay. Because personality is a reflection of motivations, and motivations drive policy as much as kind of the more logical, the logos of a candidate. It affects who they listen to or if they listen to people at all. Trump has been very insular. He tends to listen to members of his family and a very close circle of advisors. I'm not disagreeing with you in terms of prioritizing policy over personality, but you have to consider personality. I use the example of, going back to 2016, Trump versus Cruz. The reason I was a Cruz supporter during the 2016 primaries was not because of policy, it was because of personality. Cruz, in 2016, his personality was very different than Trump. Trump was, in 2016, exactly who he is in 2020. And in 2016, I was like, that orange jerk. I don't want him in the White House. But as his personality, his personality has become less important to me because of the policy, but his policies are still a reflection of his personality. He's not a dogmatic conservative. He's a pragmatic businessman. And that's why I've disagreed with some of his policies, but he's working to get stuff done. He's listening to people like Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. He's listening to Jared and Ivanka. He's listening to Pence, Stephen Miller, Mitch McConnell, all of these people. He's getting stuff done, and I like that. But people have to, because there are going to be elections after Trump, despite what some people in the media say and what the people of the Lincoln Project are saying, there will be elections in 2024 and going forward. Horrible ad, by the way. Oh, oh I know. Oh, that was, that was awful. But you have to consider... You have to take policy into consideration. Personality is a part of that, in my opinion. One thing I would like to add to that is is in 2016, Trump was known as an individual, as an entertainer. His personality as a politician was relatively unknown. Yeah, he's bombastic. He talks a lot. He uses only small words. Rosie O'Donnell. He has only Rosie O'Donnell. The, the best words, <laughs> the biggest hands. Oh all my those gosh. Things. But honestly, I think the hurdles he had to overcome in 2016 with reference to personality were higher than they are now. He's a known commodity now. He's had four years to prove himself from a personality perspective. But we've also, the American people have had an opportunity for four years to observe how that personality results in policies or how it results in policies in spite of his personality. Right. So I think that's a huge thing that people are underestimating when it comes to his personality. That's true. I don't think you're wrong completely. I think that when we look at what affects us, yes, 
personality does feed into that. And I, I guess what I'm talking about is Trump's being so bombastic and being so reactionary. Yeah. That puts off people for sure. But at the end of the day, what does he do? And it's the same with Biden as well. It's just like when Biden talks, I think people get caught up. Like I, I posted something. It was kind of a personal post. There were some co- people in the conservative media who are making fun of a stutter. And folks, I don't know if you've caught on to this fact, but I have one. And it's something that I, I work very hard to mask from all of you because I don't want to be a distraction. And so when people were, were making fun of his stutter... It was ridiculous. It was just, let's talk about his policy. He's always had this problem. He's always had trouble communicating some of his ideas. And I think one of the reasons is because he's trying to do something, which those of us who have this challenge do. We replace words that we can't say with words that we can say. He he gets lost in it because he's trying to reach for words. So again, people get caught up in that rather than looking up. They think he's like a doddering old fool or something like that when he's maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he is. Right. (laughs) Right. right. So, but it's his policy that we need to be checking out. It's his actions that we need to be doing. And he's been in politics for 47 years. We have a lot to look at. We have a lot to say, what are you consistent on? What are you not? Mm -hmm. Rather than looking at, okay, what kind of guy is he? Yeah. And to that point, stutter aside, age aside, personality is a part of this because what has he said about the people he wants to lead and about the voters? On Saturday, he said something to the effect of called half the country chumps. He said oh, that he was talking about there were people who were drowning out one of his drive-in riots. Drive-in riots. <laughs> Freudian slip, I promise. He was doggone it. <laughs> Can we go to a drive-in ride? I want to go to a drive-in ride. I'm sorry, Biden voters. That was an honest mistake. They were were drowning out one of his drive-in rallies with their horns, and he called them them chumps. He said other things. He called a voter fat during the primary, challenged him to— Yeah, called them dog-faced pony soldiers, challenged one of them to a push-up contest. Those personality quirks— of him being kind of an angry old guy, or just an angry guy, and it doesn't matter that he's old, is that those are reflections of how he will approach policy. Just like in 2016, Hillary calling half of Trump supporters the basket of deplorables was a reflection of the policies she would have enacted had she not lost to the orange man in 2016. So I think to summarize, policy and personality are mixed, and we vote based on both. Joe and Dan, I'm curious because one of the big changes I've seen in politics, really going back to Obama, but it got started, I think, for me, and I started to notice it in 2016, was a shift away from policy in a lot of campaigns and towards moral language to define policy, not in terms of here's what it's going to cost and here's how we're going to pay for it and here's the number of people it will impact. Let's talk about how such and such is a human right and it is immoral for this group of people to have this much money or for that group of people to own these constitutionally protected objects, whatever it is, or for people who say things that we believe are objectionable or problematic is the word of the day. I have a theory that it's a reflection of how as our society becomes increasingly secularized and we remove any sense of religion from the public sphere, we are creatures that long for something beyond this life. We look for meaning outside of our own lives and our own existence. It seems to me more and more people, more so on one side of the aisle than the other, look to government 
as the source of morality and a source of right and wrong. And I'm curious, one, if you guys agree with that or if you think I'm totally off base. And I know, Joe, at least you will tell me if I'm way off base. You always do. Correct. Um, (laughs) So your thoughts on that. And two, how you think that's going to affect elections going forward. I agree with you. And I want to do so. I would categorize this from a perspective of roles. I agree with you that the secularization of American culture and Western culture at large plays a part in this. I also agree with you that humans intrinsically, from the way we are made, have an inclination toward discovering and understanding the divine. Up until, I would say, the age of reason really took off, but more specifically, this postmodern, post-1980-ish Western culture, it's not been a matter of whether or not we look to the divine, but who do we look at as our savior? Mm. So I think in the last 20 or 30 years, what we have seen is the majority of Western culture, or purportedly a majority of Western culture, or the trend in Western culture, has been to replace any kind of divine savior that is unseeable, untouchable, unobservable, scientifically, with someone or something that we can see, hear, feel, and touch. And you can see, hear, feel, and touch government. So I think that when we look at the secularization of Western society, I don't think we should look at it as an abandonment of religion. I think we should look at it from the perspective of a replacement of religion. People are continually and more and more looking to government to save them from the plight that they are in, as opposed to looking at their faith or the person or object of their faith to relieve them from the situation that they are in. So I think, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I like that it's broad. It doesn't have to be a certain faith or anything like that. You're talking about a Messiah just in a sense of, yeah, I mean, whether whether you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, doesn't matter. We're not pushing any kind of religious doctrine or dogma here. But yeah, we're seeing more and more people step away from whatever faith they believed in and think that government can be a moral guide for righting moral wrongs in society, when really it's the responsibility of us as individuals to make our own communities better. Correct, because if you look at the conversations and the the rhetoric that was involved in candidates' debates up until the mid-1990s, there wasn't a lot of moral conversation going on. It was all very dogmatic, but very pragmatic. It was all around fiscal policy, environmental policy. It was all around defense policy. There was never this tactic of labeling the other side as unvirtuous or immoral. Right. They were simply an opponent. When you label somebody as immoral or unethical or wrong, you make them not an opponent, you make them an enemy. And that really escalates the conversation. And we've seen a lot of that escalation go on. Oh, yeah. And on both sides of the aisle. That's where you get punch a Nazi. That's where you get throw commies from helicopters and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. It is an interesting question because to Dan's point and your point, I think the moral position has taken a higher role in every conversation. I think... There's a moment in the first debate between Trump and Biden that stood out to me, which is interesting because uh, most between all the all the yelling and loud. Yeah, most of that that. debate I've been trying to forget as best I can. But the thing that stood out to me was when Trump, I believe, 
was asking, what do Americans want? And Biden, you could barely hear him because Trump was over-talking him. Biden said, Americans want to be safe. That is not true. Americans want to be free. That is true. And I think one of the things that has been lost in this entire conversation in the terms of a moral hierarchy is what that means is Americans are trusted with the rights they have to make the decisions that they want. And these rights are not given by government, which has been elevated. They're born with them. And there's nothing government can do to take them away except by force. Government doesn't grant the natural rights that we have. Government is supposed to protect those rights. We have those rights regardless. And so I would say that there's a moral position being taken by those who want to subvert that particular ideology to say, actually, what you really want is to be safe. And here's how you can be safe. In the case of COVID, it's a lockdown. In the case of wage equality or income equality, it's no one earns over a specific amount. And if you do, we're going to tax you at 80% because we want you to be as equal as other people who don't earn that much. It's under this umbrella of safety versus freedom. It's freedom to fail, which I believe is where we learn a lot about ourselves and about our ability to get back up. But it's also the lack of freedom to try. Mm -hmm. Because if the motivation is not there for me to be better than I am now, which is dictated by income, you did a great podcast. It's actually our most popular podcast on profit. What is the motivation? of someone. It's, I want to help people. I want to serve people, but I want to become better than what I am now. And so I think that the moral position has been elevated. And we've seen this in history. You can speak to this more than I can. When morals are used to invoke power over people, it never ends well. And so going back to your question where do these morals come from? Do they come from the love of government? Do they come from love of God? Do they come from love of self? Hmm. And I think that those three things have blended together in a lot of ways. I think that government for some has become God. I think that's, Oh, undoubtedly, yeah. I think that self has become God. I think that for those who have their faith in the Lord, faith in God, it's easy to conflate our political views and intertwine them with our theological views. So that's also wrong. So I think that there's a lot that the moral sense, what is absolutely wrong and what's absolutely right has been diluted to the point where it can be right or wrong, depending on who you are, where you're at, what wage you're at, how you look, and there's nothing that's true anymore, or it doesn't seem to be. It's a long answer, but no, that was, that's, very good. If I could add to that, I loved what you said, Joe. If I could add to that one point, I think to your point of Americans do not want to be safe, Americans want to be free. The desire for safety was not what drove the settlers to come to the new world. Safety was not on their mind. If it was, they wouldn't have come. Freedom was. Safety was not what drove the colonists to rebel against the British freedom was. Safety was not what drove Americans to 
push westward. Freedom was. The ability and the freedom to set their own destiny despite their class. A desire for safety was not what liberated Europe. Twice. The desire to be free and to have others experience that freedom was. So I think when it comes to the morality of that, a person's morality or a person's moral compass is what drives them. Americans' moral compass historically has driven them to greater and greater expressions of that freedom. Only until recently have we projected our own individual morals that drive us onto other people in a way that demands those other people operate and act on the morals that are driving us. And the right is as guilty of this as the left. Oh, absolutely. I lived through the 80s and 90s. <laughs> okay. The, the moral majority the and moral, all of that. Yeah, the yeah. moral majority. And there was a lot of good that came from that. But there was also a lot of a lot of what we're seeing now on the left is the pendulum swinging the other way from what happened in the 80s and 90s. There was a lot of moral projection and, dare I say, virtue signaling from the Christian right in the 80s and 90s upon people who did not have the same morals. And what we're seeing is a backlash of that now. Yeah, I think 9-11 played a role in that, just in terms of physical safety as well, where an entire generation saw America transformed on a bright Tuesday morning, and now we're worried about our physical safety as well. And we look to government instead of looking to ourselves and saying, oh, government needs to protect us instead of saying, no, we need to protect ourselves. Dan's nodding, but Joe has the mic at the moment. I do indeed. I think that that's, <laughs> I think that that's, a, that's a great point in terms of both sides of the aisle using government to dictate morality. We saw that when trying to define marriage. We saw that in other areas as well. Yeah, and, and once you define it, then you can redefine and, it. Yeah, and so the the act of invoking federal, I'll say federal opinion, on a specific moral institution to get your way is not is not good for either side. And so bringing all this around, what does that mean for tomorrow? Where are we at? I think that we have two very different visions for America's future on the ballot. And I'm not here to tell you how to vote. No one here is going to say, you know, oh, you should go vote for Trump or Biden or Joe Jorgensen or anyone else on this. But of the two major candidates, we have one candidate who is for increasing government regulation and direction of our lives because we know what's best. We know what's moral. We know how to protect you from foreign threats. We know how to protect you from domestic threats. We know how to protect you from the virus. And you have another candidate who has a very different vision of, I am here, we are here, my party is here to empower you to be free to live your own life, to be free to succeed and free to fail. Yes, we will have a basic welfare system to make sure that those who lose their jobs through no fault of their own or who have lost their livelihood due to COVID or who are disabled, etc. No one taken seriously in that party says we should abolish public schools. We should abolish the welfare state. We should abolish Social Security or anything like that. But I am here, this candidate is saying, to empower you to go as far as you can 
black, white, Latino, Asian, gay, straight, bi, trans, questioning, rich, poor, young, old, all of that, I am here to level the playing field and then get out of your way. And for those of you who haven't voted, I think that's what should be in your mind. Do you want a society based on equality of outcome, where no matter how hard you try, your success may be restricted somewhat in order to take care of others because it is the moral thing to do, it's the right thing to do, it's the just, the kind thing to do, or do you want a society where everyone, regardless of race, color, class, or creed, can start at the same place and can go as far as they want and they can enjoy the American dream. If they fail, there are institutions and and there are policies and programs to help you out, but no one is gonna come here and say, you've gone too far. We need to take something from you. You're not capable of making decisions about your health, about safety, about education, about raising your children. We need to do that for you because we, the organizers, the bureaucrats, know what's best, and you don't. That, I think, is the vision, and it all stems from a sense of morality. Does morality come from a source outside society that tells you you have been created or you have evolved with a sense of what is right and what is wrong, and it is up to government to let you be free to live according to the dictates of your conscience, or do we live in a society that says, we know what's best, and you have to do it regardless of what your own conscience tells you? That, I think, is the contrasting vision for America that's on the ballot for tomorrow. I think to that point, I think a lot of people maybe realize that that is what is on the ballot. I hope so. I think so. And I think, to to his credit, Joe Biden is correct. The soul of America is on the ballot. And I'm curious. That was a very, It's a very good point. I think he's, I don't think he's wrong in that. The question is, what is the soul of America? Are we the exploring pioneers who risked it all to build our own nation in, dare I say, our own image, and then went to the moon and are going Liberated to Mars apparently in the next three yeah. years? What is this? I didn't know this. Go for it, Elon. <laughs> or are we a people who is content to have government give us the things that we need? Or that it thinks we need. Yes. To each according to his need. To each according to his need, and essentially become vassals of the state again. And that's the question on the ballot. Which America are we going to be? What is our soul? And I think it's a healthy conversation to have, to be very oh, honest. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think from time to time, nations need to have that conversation. And I, I feel grateful that we're in a country that we can have that conversation and then have an election to determine where, where we're going. Mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. And I think we're going to see more of that, the, more of those kinds of conversations in free societies coming out of COVID, because I think that yes. has really brought a, a lot of, I mean, if you look at what's happening in Europe right now with the lockdowns and all of that, I think over the next four or five years, people in the UK, for example, Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, Green, I think they're all going to be like, okay, do we want to have the same level of control exercised from an allegedly conservative government going forward? Or do we want to restructure things so that no one Keir Starmer, Boris Johnson, no one can do this to us. Same thing in France, same thing in Germany. Exactly. It's the same conversation when it comes to the United States, when it comes to the Second Amendment. It's like, here we go. Sorry. The, 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 no, the, you're right. Yeah. yeah. The left is all about banning firearms until they're dissatisfied with the way the government is infringing upon their rights. So what does that conversation look like? How are you going to be able to express that right and exert 
your liberty to control your own destiny in the kind of environment you're trying to push for. Yeah, and just on that, I have to rant for a brief moment. Why is it that people on the left are convinced that four years ago we elected Orange Hitler, and now they're like, no, take everyone's guns? If you really believe that Orange Hitler is in the White House and potentially could be there for another four years, shouldn't the left be the biggest fans of the Second Amendment in the world? Yeah, they should. Anyway, sorry, that's a that's a... <laughs> That's a whole separate podcast for uh, for maybe for another day. You were just talking, Dan, about the soul of America. You know, you were saying about, John added in, you know, we've accomplished all these things as Americans. We've also righted a lot of wrongs, or we have a society in which yes. we can- Preach, brother. We can right the sins of our past. How many men died in the Civil War? About- a million on both sides together. Yeah, I understand that the primary purpose of the Civil War was to preserve the Union, but Abraham Lincoln still freed the slaves because that was the right thing to do. The history of slavery is the putrid scar on our face. Like, we are always trying to heal that scar. And from the Civil War on, brave men and women fought to make sure that no matter what color you were, the principles of this country applied to you because they're there anyway. They're true anyway. Government doesn't say, hey, you have the right to property. We have the right to property. That's what we're born with. And so in this society, people were able to say, this is a wrong. We're going to fix this. They didn't do it fast enough, in my opinion, but as they started to do it, they continued to do it. From, and we are continuing to do we're it. We're continuing to do it from the 1800s, even to now, every single day, we're taking that one step towards making sure that the freedoms that we all are born with are acknowledged by the government we elect. And that, I believe, is the soul of America as well. And when you look at any other society in, the, in history, there are some that have that have that pattern. We're not the only ones, but we're the only ones that have done it this fast. And we're the only ones that have the mindset to say, based on the principles that this country was founded on, this is a right thing. This is a moral position that every American should have, that everyone should be free, that everyone should have the right to own property, and everyone should have the right to life. And so in those ways, I think that that speaks to it. And I think that those three things are always on the ballot, Absolutely. Whether, whether it was McCain and Obama Romney and Obama or Gore and Bush. It doesn't matter. Those are always on the ballot. And I think that the the fundamental misunderstanding of that fact, I think, is driving a lot of what we would what we were just talking about, that moral position that changes with each election. Yeah, I agree with you, Joe. And I think, and here I have to criticize Joe Biden, when he said in an ad and then in the second debate that America is an idea, that we've never lived up to it, but we're trying, I'm sorry. That is possibly the most historically ignorant thing that has ever been said by a presidential candidate. I didn't mention it in our second debate review because I was still trying to process this, but America is not an idea. I love what Donald Trump said in his 2020 State of the Union. America is a canvas. This nation is our canvas, and this country is our masterpiece. We have built a society that reflects the ideas enshrined in our founding documents. Is it perfect? No. Will it eventually become perfect? Who knows? But to say that America is just an idea and we're all striving towards an idea is absolutely wrong. 
we are a nation that has put ideas into practice. We freed the slaves. We settled the continent. We freed a world. We went to the stars. We've cured how many diseases? We have built a better place, not just for America, but for the entire planet. This country is a good country. It is a decent, honest, hardworking country filled with wonderful, decent, honest, hardworking people. And anyone who says, right, left, doesn't matter, that, oh, we're just some idea that we're never really able to get to because we're flawed. And if you elect me, I will make this country into the ideal. Uh Uh-uh. Some problems are too big for government. Slavery was ended by government, but racism has largely, largely been eradicated, not by government policy, but by constant conversations between racists and non-racists. Bigotry towards women, towards LGBTQ people, towards other minorities has largely been eradicated, again, not entirely, not by government, but by individual conversations. We are making this country great again. And say what Trump or say what you want about Donald Trump. His message of make America great again is not elect me and I'll make America great again. It's elect me and I will enable you to make America great again. Right there, you have the difference. America's an idea. Elect me and I'll get us closer to it. Make America great again. Elect me and I will allow you to act as free men and women to make your lives and your communities great again. One word we've heard repeatedly applied to Donald Trump and his supporters is is fascist. And as a historian, can you define that word, please? Oh, boy. Sure. It's – I think I'm going to do this right. I don't have textbooks or anything in front of me, but I'm going to try and do this right. World history students, past and present, go find your history textbooks. It's the chapter on Mussolini, and uh, you can email me if I get this wrong. Fascism, in its broadest definition, is – ultranationalist, believes in the good of the state above the good of the individual and the good of of a particular state over the good of all all other states. So it's the opposite of globalist, but it also is anti-individualist. It is corporatist in that it believes in an alliance between big business and government. So government dictates big business policy. Small businesses can do what they want. It's not like communism or, or socialism where the government's directing or regulating or controlling or owning businesses. But big business and government work together to promote big business profits and government interests. And then it is totalitarian and authoritarian. So it believes in government control over the individual, over every aspect of the individual's life. Those are kind of the three defining characteristics of all fascist regimes, whether you're talking about Mussolini, Hitler, Franco, or anyone else. Doesn't seem to really fit the ideology of Donald Trump. I would add one, if I may add one question. Yeah. Loaded question. The best kind. The best kind of questions. The best questions, the best words. All the- <laughs> Okay, Donald. <laughs> the morning of November 4th. How do we as Americans respond to an outcome that we do not desire? First off, don't loot your local Walmart. Recognize that there's going to be another election. Be upset. I certainly Scream will be. Scream at the sky upset? What's that? Scream at the sky uh, upset? You know, if it's a choice between screaming at the sky and mass civil unrest, by all means, scream at the sky. Noted. But I'm going to laugh at you if I see your video on Twitter. Just saying. If, I'm a if, bad person. If I become a triggered meme. <laughs> <we> yes. <laughs> Recognize 
what has been true about this country from the beginning. There will be another election. But start to think about, is it possible that we have given our government too much power over our own lives? Start to question, is it necessary for government to be able to define marriage, for example? Should we maybe let individual states make decisions on certain medical procedures? Is it possible that maybe, just maybe, those dead old white guys who wrote the Constitution got it right when they said, and this is not a political point, this is a basic civics point, when they said, let the states be laboratories of experimentation, let the states figure out which policies work and which ones don't, and then amend the Constitution to implement the good ones. But point being, let's lessen the degree of federal intervention in the economy and in social policy to appease Republicans and Democrats alike. And let's get back to a point where civil conversation, instead of screaming at the sky and burning things in the streets, actually determines the pace of social change. Not every problem can be solved by government. And I think election seasons are where both sides, left and right, and I am as guilty of this as the next person, I tend to think, well, if my candidate wins, all of America's problems are going to be solved. That's not how it works. Our country is made better when we, the people, step up, see a problem, and deal with it. All right, gentlemen, well, thank you for giving up your Halloween evening to uh, have this long discussion. I appreciate you, Joe, for all the work that you do on this podcast, and Dan, for joining us. We look forward to having you back soon. This has been an experiment that we've been doing for you, our audience, in commentary on world events and on this election. If this is something that you have enjoyed, please, please take a moment and share this content on whatever social media channels you have. We want to get the word out on this. If you agreed with us or if you disagreed with us, if you think that this content provided a value and maybe some insight, then please, by all means, share this. Send us an email. Find us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you thought. Agree, disagree. We'd love to engage with you, our audience, on social media, in email, where we can have a longer-form discussion. Our email address is 15minutehistorypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And before I sign off here, I just want to tell all of you, if you are an American and you have not yet voted, please, please, please go vote. Men and women have died for you to have this right. Please exercise it. Even if you think this election is already sewn up, you think that Biden's going to win a 49-state landslide, you think that Trump's going to win all 50 states, maybe even Guam and the Northern Marianas, please go vote. And with that... Thank you for joining us. We will be back to our regular podcast and discussion episode format next week. Until then, stay safe, and we will see you soon.